It's good. It is good to worship with you this morning. Please, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, turn to the book of James. If you don't have a physical Bible and you like one, there's some as you walk in the entryway. Feel free to take one. That's your copy. That's a gift from us to you. And I ask you to turn to the book of James because we are starting now a new series this morning in the letter of James called Faith in Action. And James, some of you may be aware, is the half-brother of Jesus who was one of the key leaders of the early church. And when you get to heaven one day and you meet him, he may wonder why you call him James. James is an English translation of his transliterated name, Jacob, in Hebrew. And regardless of whether you call him James or Jacob, his letter is very likely one of the first ones written in the New Testament. There's some debate among that and with historians, but the very Jewish tone of James, and really the book of Galatians that we just finished, is an evidence and part of the argument that says James and the book of Galatians very likely are the first letters written in our New Testament, written after Jesus had come on the scene. The letter of James makes some assumptions. The letter of James assumes that its readers, these first century believers and you and I, James assumes that we have come to believe what Paul declared in Galatians, that Jesus is enough, that Christ is the Savior, and that salvation is by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. Let me give you a quick example that might prove helpful. There are times when I ask my daughter to take out the trash. And I say something like this. Sweetheart, maybe not always. Sweetheart, would you please take the trash out for me? What assumptions am I making by asking my daughter that question? Well, I'm assuming she already knows who she is and where God has placed her in this season of life. She has, at least for the moment, my last name and hopefully her mother's good looks. And she is part of our family. God has placed her as a child under my care. I'm tasked and held accountable for her educational and spiritual formation. I aim as a father to shape her character. Did I say all those things? before I asked her to take out the trash? No. Who has time for that? It stinks. Get it out of here. Now, I've had those conversations with my daughter, and perhaps there will be time to rehash those kinds of conversations, but it's not necessary that every time I give her direction as a father, I explain all those assumptions that I'm making when I ask her to take the trash out. (laughs) My friends, in the same way, in the same way, we have the letter of James. James writes a very practical letter to the people of God. He tells them, if you will, go take the trash out on the assumption that people, believers, faithful followers who read this letter, that they know, that they know who they are, which family they belong to. As one person has said, James 
focuses on the behavior and the speech of true Christians that they should exhibit. Faithful followers of Christ do not simply collect data and information. Information on God, data on the gospel, information on the nature of God and how we're connected to Jesus, the working of redemptive history, all these facts. You see, we don't just know these things. We don't just make mental assent to these things. Christians, faithful followers of Christ, take action. We do things. We put our money where their mouth is. We walk the walk. We don't just talk the talk. Do people still say that? I think so. And uh, if some of you older people are curious, um, you know, what would repel a young person from ever stepping through the doors of Lakewood Church? Here it is. If we are a body of believers who simply know and collect and have information and data, but we never do anything. Yeah, that's, that's going to send young people running. That's going to send many of us running. So James writes this letter, as we'll read in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. It's a very Jewish way to say that it's to the people of God who are sojourning in this world as faithful followers of Christ. To those who are living a life in a world that is not ultimately their home. That's who this letter is to. And just so you know, this is in your home. You might have a physical address that says, I'm in the Brainerd Lakes area. Yeah, sorry, bro. That's not your house. That's not your home. That's not your residence. As James is going to remind us, our real residence, our real home is to be one day with Jesus in heaven. The title of our sermon this morning and what what covers our text is this. Why your trials are good. Why your trials are good. Now, this is not necessarily something you sew on a pillow. It's not something you text to someone when they did not get the promotion. This is not what you say to a hurting teenager or you blurt out to someone who's recently lost someone they love. It wasn't the response of Jesus. When Martha and Mary are weeping over the death of Lazarus. While your trials are good, while that is not our initial comments or our initial feelings in the midst of trials, it is the biblical truth and the worldview that we hold on to as we heal, and as we prepare for the scars that will come. Young people, for the scars that will come. James is, as we've said, a book of action. So our action, our action this week is this. Faithful followers of Christ pursue joy. We don't memorize verses about it. We take action. We pursue joy. Those who are resting in Christ, they pursue joy in every season of life. And I believe here in our passage, James lays out five reasons why you and I 
should pursue joy. First, faithful followers of Christ pursue joy because trials have purpose. We pursue joy because trials have purpose. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 4? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy. In the original, it's, it's kind of funny. He goes, all joy, count it. Yeah, literally, everything, all of it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our boy James has a word for his brothers. And that word, really, brothers, is the equivalent of guys. Hey, hey guys, men, women, children, all of you, count it joy. And it's kind of hidden in our English, but in the book of James, there's 108 verses. And in 108 verses, there's 59 commands. It's a book that's constantly saying, go, do, take action. And this first one is take action. He comes to his readers and he says, I command you, count it all joy. Consider it joy. Regard it as joy. Pursue joy, even in the midst of trials, temptations, and varied circumstances in life. Why? Why? Because there is a deep, divinely appointed reason and purpose in it. And what is that purpose? Uh, verses 3 and 4 tell us. That word for is really helpful. For, because, purpose statement. Why do they have pursuits of joy? Well, here's the purpose. Verse 3 and 4 draw it out quite succinctly. The testing of your faith in the midst of trials, it does something. The testing of your faith, the stretching of it, the feeling of weakness and growing in the Lord produces steadfastness, James says. It produces dedication, faithfulness, and an ardent and unwavering trust in Christ. <laughs> and we think, well, at least I think, well, ouch, I don't want that. I don't want to be tested. The prospect of my faith being stretched and brought low and grown through trials sounds terrible. And it is terrible. I mean, in some ways. You know what else is terrible? Exercise. Exercise is terrible. Some of you have New Year's resolutions. That's terrible. <laughs> And, and, you know, being active, eating right, stretching my muscles, feeling weak and exhausted so that I could grow, be strong and healthy. Well, the outcome sounds okay, but it's going through the grind that I'm not thrilled about. So whether it be school, sports, marriage, career, learning an instrument, suffering deep 
hurt or growing in the Christian life. James says, you know. Well, what do I know? What do we know? What we know is that the grind, the testing, the difficult things of life produce something. Steadfastness. Verse 4 really adds to it, doesn't it? Almost as a reminder. Hey guys, let that steadfastness in the midst of trials, that growing, that testing, let it do its thing. In the season of trials, in the seasons of having your faith tested, in the season of your doubting, wait patiently, he says. Let your circumstances and the pain of your heart have its full effect. Man, it's a hard verse to read. Because when I'm in the midst of my circumstances, and brothers and sisters, often when you are in the midst of your circumstances and trials, God, get me out of this. I hate this. This is hard and heavy. My friends, I I don't know what the Lord has you in right now. I don't know. I don't know what he has you in right now. There being a divine purpose of shaping your faith likely feels like a wet blanket. But that's supposed to be comforting. I'm hurting. I'm being tested. I'm being brought low. But there's purpose to it. Thanks, but that's not not really comforting. We often say, we often feel, I don't care what it's producing. I hate my hurt. I hate waking up in suffering. I hate that I've prayed and worked, and been diligent, and faithful, and yet nothing changes in my trials. I hate it. I know. And James knows, and God knows, we can be honest and communicate suffering without explaining it away. And we do that to ourselves at times, don't we? We go through something and someone asks us, how are we doing? Yeah, I'm suffering, but you know, God has a purpose in it. And we kind of just push aside the real, genuine, authentic feelings of pain and suffering. The very pain and suffering that has purpose that God will use to shape us. No, we don't dismiss it. We press into it. Here's a part of a song. I can't sing a lick, but I I think of this lyric often. The song goes like this. None of this is wasted. Still becoming who we are. Ordinary people. Extraordinary scars. And we do bear them. And they do have their purpose. 
and because ultimately we know they have their purpose, we pursue joy in the midst of them. Because we know it's not for nothing. It means something. It's not some random chance or cosmic accident or random occurrence. Your trials have deep divine purpose in your relationship with God and your faith. Faithful followers pursue joy, not just because our trials have purpose, but in a very connected way, in an intimate way. We also pursue joy because your Father cares. Read verses 5 through 8 with me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I find that first word a bit humorous in verse 5. <laughs> if? <laughs> if? How about when? How about when? How about when I'm up to my eyeballs and trials and circumstances and I have no idea what I'm doing? If. How about then? How about when? How, James, you got something for me when I doubt God's purposes? When my trials seem like they're going to literally choke the life out of me. When it seems that these trials will never end. If? No. When? Do you got something for me, James? And this is where the skeptic, the atheist, the agnostic, the nun, and the faithful follower of Christ have agreement. You catch that? The skeptic, the atheist, the agnostic, the non-believer, and the faithful follower of Christ, they agree on this point right now. Knowing information, knowing even the purpose of suffering and trials, it won't cut it by itself. I need something more than a religion that just gives me data. Oh, your trials, they have purpose. Yeah, whatever. Do, does the purpose giver, is he interested in me? Is he real? Does he provide something to me? James points us to the very character of God. He's not some cruel father who ordains or allows the trials of your life and simply sits back and says, well, you should know what's going on here. No, he doesn't do that. God gives us himself. Look at that phrase in verse 5 again. Who gives generously. What does God give generously? Bad in, in the Bible, in the verse, it says he gives wisdom. You know, you aren't you supposed to be the pastor? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I see that in here. Oh, okay, fine. What, what is wisdom then? 
He gives generously wisdom. What is wisdom? Is it just some verses that he gives me? Is it a right theology that he gives me? Why is the wisdom literature in the Old Testament personified? Why is it as if wisdom is a person? You see, oh, I got something right here. See, God doesn't simply give you some little token of wisdom. Oh, do you need wisdom? Are you in a trial? Here you go. Here's a token of wisdom. And you can use it for your grocery cart at Aldi. No. I mean, that's why I keep mine with me. No. He gives himself. Oh, he gives himself, my friends. He gives his spirit. He gives his peace. He gives us his son. If you are in the midst of trials, that is a good thing. It's a good thing because often is it in the midst of trials that we humble ourselves and approach a father who meets us. A father who gives to us. A father who embraces us with deep affection. Many of you have the testimony of this in the midst of your suffering, don't you? When has God seemed the most near to you? When has God seemed to show himself powerful and working in your life? Often, often it is in the midst of trials. When we hurt, when we doubt, when we lack wisdom, not if, when, when I mean, yeah, if, it's in the Bible, but he meets us. And he gives clarity on our life and he offers himself. Now, James does tell us, we read this in verse 6 through 8, we shouldn't doubt, we do have to ask in faith, and we shouldn't be double-minded when we approach a caring father. We shouldn't say, God, give me yourself, give me wisdom, show me that you're a caring father in my trials, but you know, whatever, you probably won't. No, no. We are encouraged, brothers and sisters, that even our weak faith is asking in faith. If in your desperation, you can only confess doubt and difficulty and your prayer simply is, God, help me. That is faith. Can I encourage you to press into this reality? A humble, desperate, faithful follower of Christ that says, I'm going to pursue joy. I'm going to pursue joy. I'm going to talk to a heavenly father. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to confess unbelief and sin. I'm going to him because he cares. Because he's a kind father who has purposes that maybe I cannot see. Because he's a kind father who I can trust to give me what I need. Third, we also pursue joy because we all suffer. Read verses 9 through 11 with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James here, he hits on a particular trial that was common in his day and it's common in our day as well. The trial of poverty and the trial of riches. And they're both trials. The lowly brother struggles in the midst of financial difficulty. He longs for security, comfort, ease, and you know, just the ability to breathe a little, maybe. His trials found in a form that struggles to pursue joy and the exaltation that he has in Christ. He may lack an inheritance on this earth. But oh, the riches that he has in Jesus, the promise of God in this life, and the security of heaven. The lowly brother is a rich man. The trial of the rich man looks a little different, but it's the same. He may pay all his bills. He might have the boat, the ATV, the big house. The kids have all the toys. His wife has a collection of books that rivals the Library of Congress. His trial is found in a form that struggles to pursue joy and humility. The humility of holding the things of this world loosely. And saying, yeah, this world, whatever. I have Jesus. That's his trial. So what's the point here? We have trials. They have a purpose. We have a caring father who you can go to, who offers himself. And James says, well, yeah, you know know who really struggles? Rich people and poor people. What's the point? The point is that we all suffer. Our economic status may be different. You may be young or you may be old. I'll let you figure out which category you're in. You may be single or married. You might have kids or you might not have kids. You might be employed or unemployed, male or female, Democrat or Republican, white, black, brown, green, purple. We are all in the midst of, coming off the heels of, or in preparation of, the trials of life. So why would we pursue joy in the midst of our collective trials? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why, but this is really where the biblical command and one of the core values of Lakewood Church kind of comes into play. Relational community. Your pursuit of joy in the midst of your trials and the collective trials of those around you has implications, not just on yourself, but the people watching you, the people living with you. So I can think of two ways here. First, our own personal pursuit of joy as faithful followers of Christ in the midst of suffering and trials, what does it do? It puts Christ on display. You choosing, pursuing, and chasing after joy. Saying, Jesus is enough. I have him. 
Well, it puts Jesus on display. In a world that is hurting, looking for answers, longing for truth, desiring comfort, peace, and satisfaction, what if? What if they were to meet a body of believers that pursued joy in the midst of our trials and all our personal junk? It would be as if we had someone, not some cute little token, but we had someone it would look like that would give us clarity and wisdom and peace that surpasses understanding, maybe even a Savior, perhaps. Perhaps your evangelism suffers because you're not pursuing joy in the midst of trials. But second, choosing joy in trials, it also bends our heart to grace towards other people, knowing that we're all suffering. We are often far too self-focused. Is it possible, my friends, is it possible that the quiet co-worker is exhausted and burning both ends of the candle? Is it possible that the slow and confused driver in front of you is distracted because they're thinking about their hurting child? Is it possible that the grumpy older person is struggling because their health is failing and they have a loosening grip on the life that they used to have? Is it possible the moody teenager is quietly suffering and frustrated because growing up's hard? Is it possible that the child acting out lacks security because home life has been crazy lately? Is it possible that the bitter Christian doubts God's goodness because how life has played out recently? Yes, we are all sufferers. My friends, we are to offer grace. We are to offer grace for sufferers, not judgment. Lakewood, God help us to pursue joy and to extend grace. Because we're all suffering. We're all going through suffering. So James, he comes to his readers. He comes to us. And he, he commands us, pursue joy. Because your trials have purpose. Your father cares. We all suffer. And next, because we all doubt. We all doubt. Would you read with me, please, verses 12 through 15? Blessed, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It seems that James has both a promise and a gut check for us in these verses. The promise we read in verse 12, those who endure, those who trust, those who pursue joy and cling to Christ, 
in trials, in temptations, in the difficulties of life. Well, he promises an end. It has an end, the trial. He has a promise. It has a finish line and a blessing. Faithful followers of Christ have their faith tested again and again and again and again. But one day, they will enter heaven. I think one of the reasons you read in the end of human history in Revelation, God's wiping away tears. I, mean, I think we're going to have a lot of tears and boogers and all that for a lot of reasons. But, but one of the reasons that he's wiping away my tears is because we've had to endure trials and suffering in this life. But the promise is that we will one day arrive in the celestial city and we'll be with Christ. <laughs> That's an amazing promise. That if we continue and endure, we get him. But do we always believe it? Do we always believe that if we endure and continue and suffer trials, we'll have life, a crown of life, heaven? Do we believe it? No. <laughs> no. At least Matt Nagel doesn't. There are times I doubt that God has a mysterious purpose for my trials. There are times that I doubt that He's a caring Father. I don't feel like, at times, pursuing joy in the midst of not just my suffering, but the collective suffering of others. So James does something with this word temptation in verses 13 and 14 that's interesting. It's almost the exact same word, trials and temptations. Trials in verse 2 and 3, temptations in 13 and 14. It's almost the same word. So it seems that James is kind of making this intimate connection between trials and temptations. It's a play on words. Temptations happen, or rather trials happen, and temptations arise in the midst of them. And James does this on purpose, and our brother brings it up in his letter, not by mistake. So the logic could go something like this. If trials are of divine purpose, if God ordains and allows them, then surely he is responsible for the temptations and desires that I'm facing in my heart at the moment. I'm angry, and it's God's fault. Because he allowed this. He gave me this trial. He's the one stretching my faith and testing it for the purpose of looking more like Christ. It was him. That's kind of what Adam did in the garden. Yeah, uh, God, the woman you, you gave me. I mean, he's throwing his wife under the bus, but he's blaming God. You. So James comes here and he says, no. No. James makes an important distinction. God is not the author of evil, nor is he the initiator of the temptations that we find in our hearts. Namely, the temptation to give in and pursue self rather than Christ. Much can be said, and it has been said throughout the scriptures, of temptations that arise or find their origin from the world around us or Satan himself. But James doesn't go there. Now, what does James say? James reminds us that our greatest threat to pursuing joy in the midst of trials, our greatest threat, and the greatest threat to our relationship with God and His Word, ultimately, is in ourself. 
We are lured, he says, by our own desires. Those personal desires do birth sin. And that sin leads to death in our hearts and ultimately a death in our relationship with God. We're forced to consider the reality that our greatest hindrance to our relationship with God is not even the trials themselves, but our own hearts that pull us away. I think it was Martin Luther once someone asked him if he's afraid of the Pope. Yeah, the Pope wanted to kill him, whatever. You know, he's, are you afraid of the Pope? He goes, no, no, I'm afraid of the great Pope. Self. My greatest issue and problem is not outside of me. My greatest problem is inside me. So I can't blame my temptation to anger, to pride, to frustration, to callousness, and impatience. I can't blame those things on the culture around me. I can't blame COVID. I can't blame my wife and kids. I can't even blame inept Minnesota sports teams. <laughs> no, it's on me. It's on, it's on me. Doubt and temptation arises from my own heart. So we run to the one who can meet us. We run to the one that can change us. We run to the one that can heal us. Our pursuit of joy is the intentional action to pursue joy in Christ when we doubt. When we struggle to believe, verse 12, and those desires and temptations bubble up. Ultimately, Ultimately, we look to Christ. Finally, uh, in conclusion here, this last point, finally, faithful followers of Christ pursue joy because He is in control. This is the clincher for the whole passage. Read verses 16 through 18 with me. Do not be deceived. No fake news here. Do not be deceived my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. First century Christians those initially reading James's letter, well, they read it in the midst of sojourning and living a life for Jesus in a world that wasn't their ultimate home. They read this letter as they encountered trials and circumstances and temptations in their heart. How can they possibly pursue joy in the midst of their difficult life? How? How? How can they believe their trials have purpose? How can they believe that God is a kind Father who cares? How can they believe that their personal suffering and the suffering around them isn't wasted and that God has great promises for those who endure? How can they believe all this? Ultimately, we believe all these things because of the character of God, James argues. 
Trials have a way of deceiving us and pulling our hearts away from this central reality. Your heavenly Father is in control. There's no variation or change in his character. Every good gift, even the good and perfect gifts of trials and suffering, does not fall outside his plan for your life. The clincher for James is not just that God gives good gifts in the midst of trials and that God controls circumstances. The clincher is that God has the ability to move into our world in time and space and make a difference in real people's lives now. How does James know that? How does James know that this Heavenly Father who cares moves into time and space, works in real people's lives? How does James know that? Read verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of God's own planning, of his own power, of his own will, he supernaturally changed our hearts. God's word, when, when we encountered God's word, when the Holy Spirit applied it to our hearts, when we met the Word incarnate Jesus in the Scriptures or in the body of Christ, something happened to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we repented and believed. We saw Jesus and His gospel as beautiful. We said, I want Him. I choose Christ. I'll live for Him. God supernaturally did that in our lives. See, our very condition as faithful followers of Christ, the new heart and the new life that you've been given in Jesus, that's why we pursue joy. I pursue joy because God's in control. Because God has the ability to supernaturally change a heart. And if He can change hearts... He can help me in the midst of the junk I'm going through right now. And as we read at the verse of, end of verse 18, we're just the first fruits. That's an Old Testament reference that maybe we're not familiar with, but it just talks about the early parts of a, of a harvest being offered to God in gratitude of what will come, meaning this. God has more that he plans to do, brothers and sisters. We're the first fruits. He has more that he plans to do, not just in our hearts, not just in our circumstances, but many more who are in desperate need for answers, for peace, for truth, and ultimately a Savior. Knowing that God ultimately is in control and at work in the world, it enables us it enables you and I to go out tomorrow on Monday morning and pursue joy. We pursue it in the midst of this life. We do not sit. I mean, you're, you're sitting right now, but after this, you'll stand. We, we do not sit 
do we, brothers and sisters? Oh, no. Not for a second. We take action. We live as if God is real. We rest in Jesus' work on our behalf. And out of love and trust, we go out now as we leave to our needy families, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Faithful followers of Christ take action. Faithful followers of Christ pursue joy. We rest and rejoice in Jesus' perfect work on the cross on our behalf. And now, and now, we take action. God, help us to pursue joy this week in the midst of our trials. Uh, I'd like to read a prayer if you would close and, and pray with me. Father, in Christ, we have all we can hold. Enlarge us to take in more of Jesus. If we backslide, let us be like Peter and weep bitterly and return to Christ. If we are tempted and we have no wit, give us strength enough to trust in Him. If we are weak, God, may we faint upon His bosom of eternal love. If we are in extremity, let us feel that Jesus can deliver us. If we are driven to the verge of hope and to the pit of despair, God, grant us grace to fall into your arms. Oh God, hear us. Do for us more than we can ask, think, or dream. Oh Father, help us to pursue joy. Help us to pursue Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.